Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Aliana Johnson. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and, in fact, what is going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, we are not together in person, but only in spirit as we record remotely on this very December Washington day. There is even the threat of some snow, what do we call it, wintry mix, which I always think sounds uh. like a, a frozen food offering, but that there is, that there is, that is even in the forecast, so... And we're in we're in Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah starts this weekend. I I was I knew that we were not yet in Hanukkah, but my eldest man child, as fourteen year olds are fond of doing, scoffed at my assertion, and I, being afraid of youth, believed him. So we are not yet in Hanukkah. So really, we're just getting into the shank of December, and I'm I'm addressing my excesses and deficiencies on Christmas gifts. So it's all happening. Totally. We, I mean, it's not the only part I don't like about being remote, but like one of the main parts I don't like is the lack of pastries because I don't stop at the same bakery, et cetera, et cetera. And the pastries are not a daily thing for me. So I had a like sad granola bar today and I'm just here with my coffee sans pastry. Well, I was going to say, you have only yourself to blame because you are the founder of the feast when it comes to pastry. So totally. But I just take took it. You know, I have a different routine when we're not. Oh, and you were you were single. You were you were single parenting today. I am single parenting. I think. Yeah. Like for basically the first time ever. So anyhow, I pulled it off. I feel like I've had like an entire work day. Did you take your daughter to the right place? Did, is she, is I, she yes, with? Yes. You can assure us that she is with a responsible adult right now. She she's fine. She's fine. Okay, good. <laughs> Chris, it is front page time, and up first we have Barry Weiss's launch. She's still on Substack, but it doesn't look so Substacky. This free press that she launched. She made 10 hires, and Axios has the exclusive. The headline is exclusive, colon. (laughs) Barry Barry Weiss reveals business plan for buzzy new media startup. And they tell us the success of Weiss's Substack newsletter and podcast, both of which she launched last year after leaving the New York Times, shows there's an appetite for coverage that's meant to rebuke traditional media products. Hello. And Barry, yeah, yeah. And Barry told Axios that she is responding to a demand and expanding based on the hunger of the audience. That hunger and appetite is huge. And she says we are at the very, very beginning of what this could be. Now, this is, of course, the timing of this is not not coincidental. Barry Weiss just had, I mean, she's had several, the, the world got to know Barry Weiss when she left the New York Times because of the harassment that she experienced from the people in the newsroom because she, as a right-of-center person. The knives in the slack. 
channels at the New York Times. Yeah, that was that was the beginning of a a a long discussion, a year long or two year long discussion. This was the Tom Cotton op ed, all of that stuff still reverberating. So that was her star turn. And she the, won the a meltdown lot. of the New York Times op ed pages. So she got a lot. She won a lot of insider right of center insider cred at that time. And then she had her biggest star turn yet last week when Elon Musk tapped her. And I don't know, I think of Matt Taibbi now as sort of right, or I guess I think of Matt Taibbi as just sort of a, I don't- He's I heterodox. He, he's certainly heterodox, but it, I think his heterodoxy has moved from being a economic left heterodoxy, attacking banks, et cetera, to a kind of heterodoxy that's more attractive to what I will call the Tucker Carlsonian right, nationalist right. Taibbi has migrated, sort of like Musk, I guess, in a certain way. Darling of the left turned darling of the right. But Weiss and Taibbi were given the opportunity to get what we call, what they call the Twitter files, which were disgorging documents that Musk and his team gave to them that they then reported where else but on Twitter about what on happened. The old, about the old regime at Twitter. What happened with the... Hunter Biden laptop, how, you know, they shadow banned or minimized right wing media figures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So coming out of that and her, I guess I'll put it this way. A lot of people who didn't know that she ever worked at the New York Times saw her work as a working with Musk on this. So this is good timing for her to launch this. It, totally. She, of course, had to lay the groundwork, had to have been laying the groundwork for this launch and expanding her Substack, which was hugely successful before the Twitter files came along. But anyhow, here she goes. And I think it is a test case for how successful these independent like, you know, I think the idea, you know, 10 years ago, Chris, was that for journalists, it was you need the New York Times more than the New York Times needs you. And I think we've seen this reversal in the past five years where star reporters say, no, like the big brands need us more than we need them. Like we don't need the Times masthead behind us. We can go cast out on our own and that it's the talent that's valuable, not the big brands. And so she is a good test case of this. And I know that we wish her well. The Free Beacon actually just partnered with with Barry this past week to do a piece, which was wonderful. And however, not everybody is wishing her well. We have Washington Post reporter Taylor Lorenz. Oh, boy. Her response to the Axios piece was that notable. It had, that it had too many dumb prompts and subheads within it, like my favorite, catch up quick. Weiss left the New York Times like, oh, my gosh. Anyway, sorry to complain about Axios, but I had to put it on. No, no, that was not. Actually, that, that wasn't Taylor's complaint. It was the following. Notable what gets framed as a, quote, buzzy media startup. If you start off rich, have a rich spouse, rich friends, don't follow any journalistic ethical rules and focus your content solely on serving the interests of extremely powerful rich people, you can go far, exclamation point. Wow. Which I as find... John, as, uh, jo as, jo as John Lovitz would say, jealous. Yeah, totally, which is funny for for somebody who 
comes from a well-to-do family, went to boarding school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to cast that kind of shade. Did Barry Weiss go to that, a better boarding school? Is that the complaint? To, like, yeah, Barry there, Weiss there's a little bit of projection. And she went to Chode or something? Like, is that Yeah, is there's that, a little that? bit of projection happening here. But beyond that, I will say having uh, worked in partnership with Barry just last week to publish something, I will say the, the journalistic ethical rules that were followed, there was a tremendous amount of rigor in the publishing process of quite a long piece into the American Academy of Pediatrics. So not a good look, I not, think. N- to- well, I th- my, my observations about Barry Weiss are that she is definitely good at getting attention. And that's for sure. It, she's not as good at getting attention as Taylor Lorenz, but she's good at getting attention. She's good at self-promotion. But she's also, she is a good reporter, right? She really, truly is a good reporter. She does work hard at these things. She there is there is there there. The the two things that strike me about this. Number one, dispatch has left Substack. The Substack era, I remember when I got canned, people were like, Well, you just start a Substack and it'll be great. And I laughed for several reasons. One being who would pay five dollars a month to read me. Yeah, that would be my attitude. Number one. Number two, I want to be part of an organization. I want to be part of something. I want to be edited. I want to be accountable. I want to have colleagues. I want to be somewhere. And I think what you're seeing with Barry Weiss, there are individuals, and I think a great example, by my lights, the most successful substacker is Andrew Sullivan. And he had been training to be on Substack from his days writing The Daily Dish. He had been training to be on Substack from the from the dawn of the internet era because Substack is great for a blogger, right? Here's a thing. Here's my content. I'm working alone. I'm writing alone. I do that. And it's really worked out well for Sullivan. But for most people, and I mean this both consumers and producers, it's not sufficient. And the dispatch left Substack in order, and this I'm not speaking for Steve Hayes or Jonah Goldberg here, but by my estimation, because you want to have more of a community. You want to have more of a team. You want to be more of a place to go. So, and you know my favorite line about the Substack guys. We talked about it on the show long ago, which was one of the co-founders who's like, actually, we're now thinking about bundling together different newsletters into packages for people to subscribe to. And I'm like, oh, you mean like a newspaper? Is that what you mean, sir? So- I think the idea of Substack as a, a panacea is is gone. It's useful for some, but for people like Barry Weiss, they're going to want, it's not as big as the New York Times, but they're going to want to follow the same traditional kind of model of having a good team together and producing stuff. So I wish them well. I hope they're very successful. Let's talk about the Twitter files. Do you have a take, Chris? Oh, I mean, I don't know. I, I think for for people who did not... For people who do not know Washington and people who have not followed media closely, people who are more passive consumers of media, I can see why some of this would seem shocking. I think that the the dismissive attitude of voices on the left and the OMG, my head is exploding, I can't believe it reaction of people on the right is substantially performative. I my take is this is part of a an effort 
by Elon Musk that includes firing the Twitter, whatever, they, whatever ridiculous self-important name old Twitter had given to the people who, you know, police the tweets, safety and whatever board. The trust and safety head. The trust and safety board. That, the reinstatement of Donald Trump's Twitter account. Gosh, how hard is it, by the way, every morning for Donald Trump to wake up and look at his, he's got it there, 88 million followers. And he's got to go over to to Truth Social when when he talks about when he talks about ignoring what did he say about the Constitution? We have to, whatever. Like we have to we have to. He, he wouldn't say vitiate, but we have to we have to we have to destroy the Constitution in order suspend. to save it. Suspend. Yes, we have to suspend. Lightly, <laughs> <laughs> send it on a hiatus. Yeah. Right. Send it down moment. to Mar-a-Lago and let it relax for a little while and then it'll be back. Better than ever. People are saying it's the best constitution ever. He has to go do that on Truth Social in order because he owes money. He's in the same position that Elon Musk is. Elon Musk borrowed a lot of money and leveraged his profitable businesses in order to do it. So I see the 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 moves that he's making, particularly Trump and now the Twitter files, as a bid to get right-wing America to come on Twitter. And this is the this is the difficult dance that he's got to engage in, which is Twitter is way more democratic than Republican, right? Way more. And it's way more young than old. And that is a that's a cap on advertising revenue for Twitter. So Musk needs a way to get those people to come on. He needs to get right-wing America to come on, and Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi helped him with that. But the question is, can he do that and not lose? And I, I think it can be done. It's going to be hard, but I think it can be done because the, the the left were like, if this is my last Twitter post, then I bid all of you. Yeah, a, they're a like, good uh, follow me at Mastodon. Yeah, you're like that. That's going to work about as well as when the what did they have the one that turned into all f- furry porn that Jason Miller tried to start, and it was like, oh, or Gab. Was it? I forget which one. There were, Parl- there were a bunch of parlor, them. Parlor, gab. I can't, gab. I can't keep up with them. But it's funny. It, so I agree with you that this is it is marketing and an, an, an enticement. It's a bid by Elon to change the to change Twitter's audience and to draw new people in. But in terms of the substance, I had like two. Not like anyone's really ha- hungering for my take. I am. We but, are. But okay, okay. So I had two takes. The first was that like Twitter was a totally not ideal format for it's funny because Twitter is like so wonderful for news and everyone I know goes on news. It goes to Twitter to get the latest news. But for these for this kind of long form, detailed reporting, I found stories really hard to follow in these long tweet threads. And that was frustrating because I am interested in it. Don't um, you think that part it, of that, though, was. By design for Musk. Oh, right? for, yeah, a hundred percent. And not just still, to get people to read it on Twitter, but also that it was disjointed and like a screenshot with part of the document, but you can't read that part. It was, it it did not. If you would have said the story that, that I don't Weiss think was by design. Like I think a story would be good. I don't know. I think the I'd story like would be to more read that story. I would for sure. Um, I bet, and I bet Weiss will. I hope will write a small C Catholic piece about what she learned and keep reporting on Twitter. Don't just take the stuff that they gave her, but that she is continuing to report on it to tell a more complete story. 
So I found this stuff hard to follow on Twitter. Second, my second takeaway was that the behavior of the Twitter employees, I found like totally, completely and utterly unsurprising. Like if you have any familiarity with the big tech companies, what I did find what I did find interesting was their ability to like limit the reach of certain accounts. I didn't know that they could or would do that. I thought that was super interesting. I actually was completely unaware of that. And what I found more, most galling and interesting and newsworthy was the behavior of government officials and like the the nature and extent of the interaction of oh. government officials at FBI, DHS, etc. And that like these people at Twitter are, were, you know, in many cases, the tools of government officials. Do you mean um, to say do you mean to say that people in politically powerful and governmental positions try to influence the behavior of media companies? I don't know, Eliana. That's pretty far-fetched. Like, for example, let's say a network called a state in a direction that, <laughs> a, that a, I don't know, the sitting president didn't like. Would, are you saying that that person might reach out to that organization and complain? I don't know. I, 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 certainly, ta- I certainly take the point about we have failed in dealing with social media because we treat it so differently than media. Differently right? than a media organization. Um, totally. And the, like they're not, you know, Twitter is not calling for comment. Right. You know, the FBI. And we, we don't think of the interactions happening right. in that way. But you're right that we should be thinking about we that should. because that is basically what's happening. That's right. And when the FBI talks to The New York Times about whether or not the confidential source that they have if they identify the person that it could jeopardize this mission or when the Pentagon talks to the Washington Post about whether or not they can report this and what they can report and what they can't report. And that stuff goes on all of the time and favors are traded and backs are scratched and it happens at Fox and it happens everywhere. It, it is it is part it is part of life. We have treated social media companies as and and part of it is the disgusting love that people in our milieu have had about Twitter and what Twitter was going to be like and how it was going to be. And so it was going to be the town square. It was going to revolutionize everything. Well, not really. And we have to learn to think about these things for what they are, which is media companies. I agree. And by the way, I would want to tell listeners, Eliana is holding her mic like she is about to drop a set at, do you not, did, do you not have a microphone stand? Cause you're holding it. Like well, you, I do, but Colin, but <laughs> Canoe Colin was texting me that he could hear the mic shaking because, in fact, the stand is wobbly, and so I decided to hold it in my hand because I like I it. Want, it had, I want I feel like we're, the audience to have the best possible listening experience. I feel I like we're about to have a rap battle. It's good. Mic. You, you okay. got the mic up, and you're going to be. I'm. I'm going to rock right now. Okay, I like it. All right, all right. Up next on the front page. I'm going to read the Wall Street Journal headline. Jeff Zucker, former CNN president, to lead sports and media investment firm Redbird IMI. Subhead, new venture is partnership between international media investments and Redbird, part owner of Boston Red Sox and LeBron James's James's entertainment company. Um, The picture, and by the way, the picture of Jeff Zucker that the and journal sharing, has chosen for this. He's like sharing this. headphones with somebody. He looks. He looks like he. He has. He looks 
like you want to tip him over in the chair that he is sitting in. He's sharing an earbud with a woman. He's got his phone in his hand. His suit is buttoned, but his shirt is unbuttoned to his clavicle. He's got his lanyard on, and he has a, a sneering look in his eye. You're like, flip that chair over, sir. Flip it over. Okay. I do not know anything about this company or really about Zucker's fitness to do investments. Well, you, you um, asked really a really anything. you asked a really you asked a really important question when we were getting ready to start the show. Was you know did he was well he a failure okay my at but my question my question was downstream of your saying that he's failing upward and my question following that was did he fail at CNN? Oh I my might not gosh, have liked he... what he did, but now make your case that he that he failed. Well, he failed at CNN is evident, race ipsa loquitur, that the overhaul efforts. So how did he leave CNN? Scandal for himself. Scandal for mishandling the Andrew Cuomo story. Scandal for, so all, all of that, which all related to his judgment and management. But the other thing he left behind was an expensive loser, right? He left behind a really, really expensive, overstuffed company that had been poorly managed, and it lost. And that's not that that he was he may have been a success for him. Well, he obviously was a success for himself because he got a, so people should know Zucker was he was the producer of the Today Show. Is that right? Yes. So he went from being the producer of the Today Show while Matt Lauer was using the magnetic release button on his office door. Uh, he went desk from lock, yeah. Yes. So he he went from running the Today Show when it was a when it was bedlam, right? People who are younger than dirt. The Today Show was a diva-driven, crazy town, high drama, blah 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 blah. And he got the reputation as like a media impresario that he could manage these crazy people and do all this stuff. Well, as it turns out from his time at CNN. He was making the drama too, right? And I don't, I don't know. Given how bad CNN became under him, and how they gave up the last, the the thing that CNN had was that it was a reliable source for breaking news and significant stories. And he threw that away. He threw it away, chasing ratings, and that he was a failure across the board. Now the question is. Do the people like Redbird founder and CEO, oh, that's funny. The guy's last name is Cardinal, Cardinal, Redbird, uh-huh. But Mr. Zucker <laughs> I was met, late on the uptake on that one. Zucker met Redbird founder and CEO Jerry Cardinal earlier this year through a mutual friend to discuss possible opportunities. While the two executives were at Harvard University together, they had never met. At the time, Zucker was also having discussions with IMI, a private company owned by the United Arab Emirates. <laughs> about potential yeah. opportunities to work together. So what this sounds like to me, and I bet he's going to get super rich, right? I bet the richness get of- Get super rich. The the richness of Jeff Zucker has only begun to be rich. And I his boat, he will be so rich that his boat will have a boat. And whatever, that's fine. But he was bad for CNN. And I, failing forward seems right to me. I don't think anything that you said there is unfair. I do think that the the firing over his alleged personal scandal over this 
quote unquote undisclosed relationship, blah, blah. I think that was a total pretext for the reason that they really wanted to fire him, What, which was they didn't, the, the new management did not agree with his vision, which was they wanted to restore the brand as not, you know, a crazy lefty anti-Trump hysterical brand. And wait, and you yes. think it was pretextual? Remind me what. I'd, they, what, what they allegedly fired him for having an undisclosed relationship with an employee, but that per but like everyone knew about the relationship, and this person was very, very, very senior in the company. So, yeah, but that's inappropriate. Was, I, I, I didn't, I didn't it, take it, it, and I didn't follow it closely enough. But I, I assumed it was it like that. This was a, an inappropriate thing to be doing because it was, it was an inappropriate thing for the CEO to be, to be, it, whatever. To have his cardinal with it's inappropriate, uh, but I think that had they been on board with his vision, I don't think that this would have been an issue. I don't think this is really why they fired him. I just don't think so. I think it was totally a pretext to get him out the door for awful. other reasons. I I uh, don't know the man, and frankly, every... I don't think it's that big a deal. Which you know that he was having this relationship with the chief marketing officer. Like she's a big girl; she's not getting taken advantage of. I don't no, think it's but that it's big not, a deal. It's but not it's appropriate. Not. He shouldn't be doing it. But I don't think you know there are plenty of other places she could work. The the Cuomo thing, he totally screwed up. That totally was bad. That was bad, 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 bad. And you know what else was bad, 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 bad? Was <laughs> Donald the way that they did yes. Trump? They gave Trump all the airtime in the world once. And then once he got the Republican nomination, became president, it was just the Trump network. Trump, CNN and Fox became the pro-Trump network and the anti-Trump network. And it was exhausting and boring and it shredded the credibility. And for all of the hardworking journalists at CNN who had worked hard to maintain people who covered beats. Oh, I have no. Oh, cry me a river. I'm serious. Cry me a river, Jim Acosta. Well, that's that's exactly the point, which is the people who were doing workmanlike, yeoman-like work to cover the beats and do the stuff that people have been doing for CNN and Washington forever, all of a sudden are are being overshadowed by, by yeah by Jim Acosta. All right, up next, Chris. This is kind of a. I mean, this could almost be our style section, except that it's too stupid to be. Is the ah. media mediaites most oh influential gosh. people oh. in news media twenty twenty two. And can I just say, this list has 75 people, like a list of 75 people. I mean, a list that big, I, you know, I might as well be on this list. Well, uh, my joke, even... well, first of all, you should be, number one. Number two, my joke was next year, we're going to do the wretches top 150 most influential people, and we'll just let you pay to be on the list. This is like when, do you remember the Hill used to do the, the Hill's 50 most beautiful people? Oh, the beacon. I, we want to bring that back because it is a shame that that thing was retired. That was awesome. I've never tired. I tell you one thing that has never been retired is me taunting Charlie Hurt for having been one of the Hills' fifty most beautiful people. Yes, and where we they need to bring that back. Where they where they talked about how he worked out at Results the Gym. <laughs> yeah, well, that is like the beacon sweet spot, and we must we must bring that back. Well, what was give... great about it, of course, was it failed, for people who don't know, so the Hills, 50 Most Beautiful People, used to be a style kind of thing that people used to do, like, and the people were, I don't know if I would describe Charles Hurd as beautiful, but certainly he has a look and great hair in the, in the three months of the year where it's in between shearings, it's really great, but 
the it was just what it set out to be. By the end, what was it? A a Benetton ad of people yeah. of it became so politically and culturally freighted that it was like they're beautiful on the inside. You're like, yeah. okay, <laughs> you can stop. Don't you worry, can... Chris. The the beacon won't succumb to that sort of BS. <laughs> yes, or it's totally on the merits. Okay. I know you'll do real scores. I know that you'll do real scores. Hundred uh, percent on the merits. Be like straight sevens, but a great dresser. You're on the list. Okay. Well, anyways, let's just cut to the chase. Number one on the media list is so great. Suzanne Scott, the Fox News CEO. Chris, we all right. just want to hear your take on this. No, it's. Fu- I mean, look, this whole thing. No, I, I actually, I will say this. I love Mediaite, and I don't go there. I when I'm doing show prep, I usually go to Mediaite. And Mediaite is really good about clipping and cutting, watching cable news, watching TV, clipping and cutting and posting. And they have pretty good story judgment, and it's pretty useful. But I got to tell you, so you remember that when Mediaite started, the whole thing was they were going to have a power ranking constantly, and it would oh, be Oh, yeah, they did that in. all the time. You know who's adopted that is Punchbowl. Every day they have, like, who, or every week they have who's up and who's down. I, we need that, too, over here. I know that every week. Every week, ours could be like you know, Dick Cheney's up every week. Every week, Cheney again, yet again. Dick Cheney has won. Exactly. (laughs) I I like that. You could you could have a a weekly indexed Beacon Man of the Year index. Okay, so but the the thing with these rankings is what they end up doing is it's a little of this and a little of that and a little to please when you have an audience that is you want to be diverse. Your list has to be diverse. And it's artificial. And to, I mean, I guess you could, here's the thing. Mediaite's most influential in news media 2022. It isn't Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News. She's been in the news a lot, but there's a lot of people who are more influential in news media. And I don't know, the list just looks like it was, it was put together by publicists for the different networks, got to nominate uh, totally, a handful of totally. people. And that it was a maybe whatever. Don't do lists like this. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Um, I mean, the Substack CEO would be a good yeah. Substack founder. Would or, be the, a good or the new or the new new edit, executive editor at the New York Times or the like. It's just, you know, whatever. Speaking of which, speaking two of top which, Times reporters are say, skipping the walkout. Speaking of the year, speaking of Beacon Man of the Year rankings, we have. We talked last week about the New York Times staff, U.S.-based staff, going on strike for 24 hours because the Times didn't meet their like 10 percent for 10 years, you know, pay raise every year, whatever their demands were. And Semaphore reports that two of the New York Times' top White House reporters opted out of the boycott. Was it? What, what was it? Boycott? Wasn't it a walkout? Wasn't it a, a walkout? Uh, okay. yeah, yeah, they didn't show up to work. I forget what that's called. Some well, calls it the a labor action. Flu. A labor yeah. action, but that sounds so clinical. Last week, Chief White House correspondent or Chief White House reporter Peter Baker and Pulitzer Prize-winning White House correspondent Michael Shear told colleagues before the walkout that they would not be participating in the one-day work stoppage. That's how they refer to it. Like, get, can we get like a real, real English here? Three people told Semaphore. The rift in the powerful Washington bureau reflects a lingering generational and ideological divide, i.e. Peter Baker and Michael Shear are old white dudes. 
the, between many in the newsroom and a smaller group of older unionized staff in the D.C. Bureau. I mean, good for them. Good well, for yeah, them. and good for, by the way, this is a, a scoop Max Tanny at Semaphore, I think, I think broke that story, but has been doing a good job over there. And I also think, by the way, the, the, yes, they are old white dudes. That is that is an act, an older older white men. That is true, but it's also a reflection of people who have been alive long enough to know how silly the scope of the demands of the time and how Union. institutions work. Yeah, and how institutions work. And I think they're also like guys. You know, if you put your head down and work and focus on the work and do the work and focus more on, I'm going to say the work for the fourth time. Than like, you know, <laughs> making activist demands of your bosses, like, you know, your salary will go up. I I think I think that's right. And I just I think I th- I say good. I say good for them. Good for them. Up next, Chris, we have uh, this is our New York Times little bucket. I was like galled by this New York Times story on the heels of Brittany Griner's return to the U.S., the end of Griner's detention begins a new wave of WNBA activism. And I just want to read the following paragraphs. There's just no skepticism in this story at all. I thought it was ridiculous. In recent years, WNBA players helped flip a Senate seat in Georgia nah. by supporting <laughs> the Reverend Raphael <laughs> Warnock, a Democrat, when Senator Kelly Loeffler, a Republican they, who owned the Atlanta the other one Dream, did yeah, they, did, spoke against... Did, the Black Lives Matter movement. They walked out of games to protest the police shooting of Jacob Blake, a black man in Wisconsin, as if any of this kind of activism in sports is unique to the WNBA, and dedicated a season to Priyana Taylor, a black woman who was killed by Kentucky police. Their latest collective bargaining agreement set new benchmarks in pay and benefits for women in sports. Here's oh the most gosh. ridiculous part. The plane returning Griner from Russia had not even touched down in the United States before Griner's agent... Lindsay, Lindsay Kagawa Colas pledged that the campaign to free Griner would transition into securing the release of wrongfully detained Americans around the world. WNBA players have been at the heart of that campaign and many others. I'm going to guess could, this campaign is a, a lot more words than action. She could not remember to take her THC oil out of her bag before going to Russia, but she will get this right. This will this will happen. The league. I, the league will get this right. It's going to get it done. I, oh boy, the coverage of this has just been a real debacle. And I love that at the end, the right wing was like, hold on, hold on. We can be dumb on this too. With their discussions about how Biden failed to secure the release of the businessman with lots of different citizenships. Oh, Whalen? Yeah, who has been held in Russia for four years. And it was like, you all weren't talking about him at all before, and all of a sudden you can't believe, you cannot believe. But anyway, the the coverage, the 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 bulk of the error in the coverage, of course, was talking about Brittany Griner as anything other than what she is, which is a sad and cautionary tale about international travel. A sad and cautionary tale about personal choices in international travel. I have been detained overseas very briefly it's scary where? it's weird where 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 i'm not going to tell that story but oh, i want it here maybe someday but it's the it wasn't nothing it, it 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 was revealed to be nothing serious and a small bribe was all that was necessary to extricate myself from a frightening situation 
But the point being, internet, this happens to Americans all the time who aren't Brittany Griner, right? Americans make stupid mistakes or sometimes don't even make mistakes and find themselves in difficult situations overseas. The fact that this has been turned into, I think what it sort of is, is there is a need to put a capstone on Black Lives Matter. There's a need to put, there is a need to say, like in 19, the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, put a capstone on the civil rights movement, right? That was the purpose and that was the cause for for which people marched and were jailed and suffered and did the things that they did. And they, it was the objective and the objective was achieved. In Black Lives Matter, there isn't an achievable objective. There are some stated objectives, but basically it boils down to like that there will no, be no more racism in the world. And that's not going to happen. Wait, are you are you saying that white privilege is not going to dissipate? Well, white privilege is not a thing. The thing is, is class and social status privilege, which helps some white people, hurts some white people, hurts a disproportionate percentage of black people and brown people. It's complicated. It's and I would recommend everybody listen to the dispatch, the dispatches remnant podcast. I filled in for a vacationing Jonah Goldberg this week and talked to my maybe the foremost in my mind thinker on demography and structural change in race in America, Richard Alba from NYU. It's worth listening to. You should listen to that self-plug herein concluded. But the the way that Griner has been treated is that it reflects to me what is a looking for a capstone to say, and then it was true that that this movement had succeeded because as the Democrats about face on defunding police and crime illustrated that's not going to be where it happens right that's not that's not a desirable or sustainable or politically smart that's not the space so where do you where do you say that we've won or we're winning and this seemed like they were trying to make it happen i the wnba is boring i think many people probably find it fascinating many people probably think that it's good but it's sports it's sports I don't think that my love of the West Virginia University Mountaineers or the St. Louis Cardinals has anything to do with anything. And it doesn't validate anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's not connected to something else. There are happy memories in my family with my father and my kids and my friends. But these are personal memories about our experience of going to and watching and talking about the games and the players. But it's not something else. And this has been such a craptacular example of the quest for meaning in an era where we have stripped meaning from things that are important, like family, like faith, like the things that are nourishing and sustaining to us in community, and replaced it with crap like professional athletes and politics. And this was, to me, a particularly sad episode. All right, Chris, we are we've almost made it to, to our harumph. style. Well, we've almost made it to our style section, but we have one more item over to you. Oh, man, this could have been my favorite thing. It is in many ways my favorite thing, but I did not want to close the show on a downer. The Washington Post reporting on fentanyl is amazing, is amazing. And the honest, tough way that they approach this, the accountability for government officials, the deep exploration of how it started, and they really got it. They really got it. And just kudos to them. 
And and by the way, what heartbreak I have as America continues to struggle. And, I, you know, this I, I feel this more because of where I grew up and where I worked in West Virginia. But I mean, this is it's a story you can't cover every day because the story's the same every day. Right. In a lot of ways. But that the Post took time to step back and really do this. I just kudos to them. It's really good. It is amazing. I mean, there's there are memorable lines in the story. But, I mean, the first is that the the use of fentanyl skyrocketed after government officials in the U.S. cracked down on the on opioids. And it this piece says that fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin. And it's super compact, which I did not know. And it says that it's so powerful that a year's supply of pure fentanyl powder for the entire U.S. market could fit in the beds of two pickup trucks. That's so right. That's that's just an amazing visual. We were watching uh, in preparation for Christmas. And that the source is Mexican cartels. Because they figured out, oh, okay, well, this is the demand in the market that's been created by synthetics. And they first tried to meet it with heroin. But heroin, it's hard to get people to inject stuff. It's hard to get enough heroin in. It's hard to do that. But with rather rudimentary, certainly if you have the lab capacity to process coca leaves, if you have the scientific capacity to make heroin, you can make fentanyl. And they met the market in in a new way. And it's killing a lot, a lot of people. And we were watching, in preparation for Christmas, we were watching Die Hard 2. Not as great of a Christmas movie as Die Hard 1, but still great. And we were watching Die Hard 2. And it was so funny because it was like 1990. And the narrative was, the war on drugs is almost won. <laughs> we, we're, we're, you know, the, it was the war on cocaine is, is, almost, is almost won, but there's still some holdouts in our effort to defeat cocaine. And I said, boys, the war on drugs is indeed over. And drugs won. <laughs> a resounding, resounding victory. And the our inability to address addiction and drugs in an honest way, I think, is increasing because I think now white America is white America is for the past decade is no longer able to look at this as an urban problem or a black problem, but that it's an everybody problem. And that's the I think has been helpful in in looking and thinking about these things differently. Chris. Turn to page A32. Here we go. We are at the style section, and we have not one but two items in our style section for those who are fans. First up, we have Netflix signing Barack and Michelle Obama's Higher Ground Production Company after Spotify chose not to re-up them. And Dylan Byers in Puck News writes, the question now is whether the Obamas can justify the hefty investment or whether Hollywood is merely a pricey post-presidential hobby. In fact, when you talk to producers and agents, they often cite higher ground as a cautionary tale of the streaming spending spree of the late 2010s, an expensive and vanity-driven bet on celebrity producers with zero experience that did more to make Netflix co-CEOs Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos feel good about themselves than to deliver content that Netflix members might actually watch. Same with the Obama's splashy yet ultimately disappointing Spotify deal, which was not renewed. That was a vicious sentence and a very and good accurate one. Accurate and a good one. A very uh, good one. I, I think the 
being relevant post-president, we don't want presidents who are relevant post-presidency. That's not a good thing, right? We want people to forget about presidents post-presidency. And by the way, it's a two-way street. We want presidents to do what George Washington did and leave and let the process move on. And like, I don't know, maybe not run for third time, fourth time, whatever. Anyway, that's that's what we want presidents to do is what Jimmy Carter and George Bush and and most of them did, which was go away and lead virtuous lives, but mostly out of public light. The Obamas, though, were so famous and so celebrity and Hollywood loved them so much and the media loved them so much. And by the way, I can say this is true. I have the I have the receipts. They sold a lot of ads, <laughs> right? Obama mania, when it first struck, and to a lesser degree throughout, they were a hot media commodity, right? It's not by accident they were friends with Oprah. And the question becomes that what what should the Obamas do post-presidency, number one, and what does the public really want from them? Spend time in Hawaii. Seriously. I would be doing. Kick it. Reading my Kindle, drinking Mai Tais, and getting a tan. They seem to be doing, I have to say, they seem to be doing pretty well. They seem to be enjoying life anyway. And how their kids are almost grown, right? The younger, which is the younger one? Sasha? Yes. She's got to be almost in college if she's not in college. Look, somebody will be like, Chris, she's 35 now. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm old. I forgot time is a yeah. circle. But anyway, they seem to I be mostly I was going to say doing- she must be out of college. Right. So the, they're empty nesting. And, you know, Obama campaigned a little bit in the midterms. But I don't know. So far, it's it looks like they're trying to find the right place on this and the right energy. But one thing also is clear. All of the smoke that these companies blew up their skirts to tell them how great they were. Thank I just will say as an American. And this is true with Trump and his lunatic efforts, and it's but it's true with the Obamas too. I'm glad Americans aren't really interested in what former presidents are doing, and that after they leave the office, the people are more interested in the office than they are the person. Even better than that item. Oh baby, oh baby. From the New York Times, we have we're in list season. We're in list season. We have the 93 most stylish people from the New York Times, and. And they put people in quotes, by the way. The most noteworthy one was John Fetterman. Take it away, Chris. (laughs) So (laughs) when my eldest man child wears a lump of a gray hoodie, I call it his Fetterman hoodie. And I do not mean it as a compliment, right? But so the, the quote from the New York Times the senator-elect from Pennsylvania is going to bring Carhartt to the Capitol. And it That's talks about it, it. It talks about how, that, and it's got a picture of Fetterman in a, and by the way, to tell you how old I am, I don't know an unfashionable. I don't know half. I don't know two-thirds of the people, the 93 people who are on the list. Uh uh, Eric Adams is another politician who's on there, but I don't know most of the people. But John Fetterman, the senator-elect from Pennsylvania, is going to bring Carhartt to the Capitol. Well, let me tell you something. If you were going to do any style assessment of John Fetterman, you would talk about how he looks like a corpse in an un- in a cheap undertaker's office when he wears a suit. And you know what he's going to wear in the Senate? He's going to wear a suit because he has to, because he can't wear a hoodie on the floor. 
and it's horrible. And I feel terrible for the guy. He has a big growth on the back of his neck that I think makes it impossible for him to wear collars that fit. But it is a lurch from the Adams family situation. It is a disaster. And I feel bad for John Fetterman. And I don't, I, it's, this is, this is New York Times. This is wrong. You are wrong. Bring back Mr. Blackwell. Totally wrong. Chris, do you remember Mr. Right Blackwell? In. By the way, do you no. remember Mr. Blackwell? No, I was so just going to like ignore no. that and move move into obsessions, but you're going to no. make me pay attention. Mr. Blackwell, was it Esquire? I forget where Mr. Blackwell was, but he was the men's guy. And Mr. Blackwell had that sort of arch. You remember the guy from Project Runway who was the male fashion designer, fierce, the fierce guy? Oh my gosh, he uh, Tim Gunn. Yes. So Mr. Blackwell had a very Tim Gunn kind of energy. And Mr. Blackwell every year would do his best and I believe worst dressed list for men. And bring back, we need a new Mr. Blackwell. Your tennis shoes with a suit, men, put them away. Sometimes you have to wear adult shoes. Now look, this is coming from a man who, as I'm recording this, is wearing a hat that has a, a drawing of a ham on it. I'm not saying there aren't times where you can be very comfortable. But it's not every time, men. So we need to bring back the structure. We need a new Mr. Blackwell, please. I love Tim Gunn. Okay, Chris, it is time for our Obsessions of the Week. Where we break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads. And Chris, we have complimentary obsessions. I love when this happens. Serendipity. Normally I go first, but this time I think our obsessions make more sense if you go first and then I add, I and then I compliment. So, go, so, as, so take it away. So as everybody knows, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which is quite, has, tra- has traditionally been quite good about being clear-eyed about things and that their explainers, even if you don't agree with their point, are good. But on tech stuff, for some obvious reasons that have to do with their corporate parent and some less obvious reasons that have to do with the shift in the audience among Republicans, but whatever the on tech stuff, the journal has gotten pretty. (laughs) It's, it's, it's become a less reliable voice for clarity on these things. So this is why. Tell us what you mean by that. So the, way that the the journal came to cover Meta and Google and these other things became very, I don't know, it, it seemed Murdochian in its antipathies toward, I'll put it this way. Okay, so too hostile if, to tech? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if Facebook was a, if Facebook was Bain Capital, <laughs> the Wall Street Journal would not be treating, if, if Facebook made monkey wrenches instead of sold ads for getting people to click on stories about dogs, then they would have received very different treatment. I think that's part of it. And I think the other part of it is just the right got real. And I think, by the way, Elon Musk and what's going on with Twitter and, by the way, the the mass layoffs at, at Facebook, Meta, and all this other stuff, I think the right is sort of moving past its obsession with this stuff a little bit. So that's all whatever. And that is just prelude to say it made it even better to read the Wall Street Journal's clear-eyed, intellectually consistent, correct, deeply correct take on Sam Bankman-Fried and how things fell apart for, speaking of 
best dress that, that was Axios a couple of weeks ago that had his this the style oh, yeah. section on Sam oh my Bankman-Fried's gosh. If, yeah, pants. if Fetterman is is in the most stylish, I can't believe they left Sam Bankman-Fried on the cutting room floor. He should have made that list too. Here's the here's the lead from the journal editorial. If the rise of Sam Bankman-Fried was a modern tale about cryptocurrency token and effective altruism, his fall seems to be as old as original sin. This is really old-fashioned embezzlement. John Ray, the caretaker CEO of the failed crypto exchange FTX, told the House on Tuesday, this is just taking money from customers and using it for your own purpose, not sophisticated at all. Mr. Bankman-Fried, FTX's co-founder, was arrested Monday in the Bahamas and is expected to be extradited. SBF, as he is often called, has been on a media tour since FTX's failure, and he portrays himself as a well-intentioned doofus savant who got in way over his head and, whoops, lost billions of dollars. The sloppiness of bookkeeping is true enough. Mr. Ray said invoices and expensive expenses were communicated via Slack chats, and he said they use QuickBooks. But it's backed by allegations in the federal indictment, along with a civil complaint from Securities and Exchange Commission, that Bankman-Fried engaged in a scheme to defraud customers of FTX.com. It goes on from there. But the point is, the Wall Street Journal makes it plain. This is not about blockchain technology. This is not about the digital world. This is not about some other thing. This is about human nature. This is a human being behaving like human beings have done. And whether it was FCC licenses, whether it was gold rush gouging for equipment for the Sutter's Mill strike, all of it, it's always the same story. And kudos to the Wall Street Journal for a clear-eyed, good, and, and by the way, for those of us who, I, I knew with Bitcoin very early on that it would not be for me. <laughs> I knew from, from the start, no, this will not be for me. So for those of us who sat out, this is a clear-eyed explanation, really good, really good, really good, really good. Yeah, crypto not for me either. And my compliment to this was my obsession was this wonderful piece it was a Wall Street Journal news side piece on SBF's parents. They are these super left-wing Stanford Law School professors who have been, you know, the dad wrote tax legislation for Elizabeth Warren and the mom ran a super PAC that gave all this money to Democratic candidates. So, you know, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. But the parents were totally enmeshed in this business. And the piece is... Wonderful. And I'll just read a little bit. Before FTX's collapse, Mr. Bankman was a paid employee of the company for almost a year. He joined his son in meetings with Washington policymakers, expanded its philanthropic endeavors, and helped connect his son to at least one major investor. And when Mr. Bankman and Ms. Freed visited their son in Bahamas, where FTX is based, the company provided a place for them to stay. Their names were also on real estate that the company purchased and this, that, and the other. It's a wonderful piece. And, you know, somebody said to me, when business people lead with their moral and ethical stuff, that's a red flag. Chris, it's time for Reader Mail. Oh, yeah. And we have Kathy Wilson from Alexandria, Virginia, has comments on your comment on Welcome In. And she oh. says, Welcome In are not the only words that make no sense. Replying perfect to any response, including your address or dinner order, is maddening. The word is everywhere. Can't be escaped. While I'm at it, the new way of writing headlines, overuse of prepositions, drives me bonkers. What you need to know about, dot, dot, dot. How to, dot, dot, dot. 
why you shouldn't, dot, dot, dot. Here's what happens when, dot, dot, dot. Are these people being paid by the word? Charles Dickens would have loved this job. Love you all. I think when Chris goes missing, an Eliana Christine Rosen podcast would be cool. Kathy Wilson, um, I love you. I love you. That is correct. Both about the Christine Rosen as designated survivor and about welcome in and, and perfect and the stupidity. You know, we've everybody talks about it, but word inflation, right? That that things are hilarious. Well, it was kind of funny, right? <laughs> laugh out, rolling on the floor, laugh. Well, you weren't really. And so the word inflation strips the words of their meaning, like perfect. And the it, Kathy Wilson, I will just say, don't read Axios. Then, if if those are the headlines, that's the the structure that bugs you. Just steer clear of Axios. Up next, Chris, we have Cameron Meyer from Baltimore, Maryland, who says that this article seems right up your alley, and Cameron sends a link to a Washington Post article. Chris, you play, you praise the Washington Post for their coverage of the fentanyl crisis, but this is this piece will make your head explode. Why doesn't Argentina have more black players in the World Cup? And Why then indeed? there's a correction, there's a correction appended to the article that says the Washington Post opinion piece complaining that there are no black players on Argentina's team has been corrected after the fact to note that quote far less than 1% of the Argentine population is black. So the to Kathy Wilson's point the why doesn't structure at the beginning was it doesn't look like it was the original <laughs> doesn't look like it was the original headline. The original headline seems to be Black Erasure in Argentina Helps Explain Its World Cup Team. Black Erasure in Argentina Helps Explain Its World Cup Team. Now, I don't know how Argentina is doing in the soccer tournament because I don't care. And that's 100% true. Metric football is not my problem. But the idea that it's just, I, I just... This is the was it the Washington Post who talked about how problematic it was about the lack of black there were there were people black people African African people of African ancestry on the major league world major league baseball world series but they were not descendants of slaves and this was problematic this is this tops even that this tops even that Chris it is now time for your favorite time of the week where I am forced to say something nice. And this week, it will be no problem at all. But as always, you are going to lead by example. Well, this turns this turns out to be unintentionally very much on topic and of a thread with my ranting about sports journalism and the coverage of sports in the news. This is very much a piece of those things. And it is, and I know this is cheating to do the onion in my favorite things. But since it was the news, since it was the onion about the onion, about the news business, I'm going to, and it's also December, I'm going to indulge myself here. Onion headline, Nation forgives Harvey Weinstein after he gets really good at football. Los Angeles, the American people have reportedly forgiven Harvey Weinstein Wednesday after discovering the disgraced mogul has gotten really good at football. Quote, I don't condone what Harvey did, but man, that guy can run like a demon, said 38-year-old homemaker Sarah Reese, who represented just one of the nation's 333 million residents, calling upon officials at Twin Towers Correctional Facility to release Weinstein following a super tight spiral. Quote, he tru he's truly a once-in-a-generation talent. Is he sorry for what he did? Who knows? But he ran a 4-3-40 for God's sakes. I mean, look at that arm. 
He's dropping dimes. It would be more criminal to keep him off the field. At press time, Weinstein, Weinstein had signed with the New York Giants. So excellent, excellent commentary on sports journalism. Hilarious. And when you go to the link in the show notes, you'll see, or when you subscribe to High El Retros, our newsletter, you will see the awesome Photoshop picture of Harvey Weinstein throwing a football. Chris, speaking of our newsletter, I got a wonderful note from a listener in Ghana who said, I don't have a U.S. zip code. How can I sign up for the newsletter? So for any other listeners who may be in Ghana or any other foreign country, I love getting that note. But please email us at wretchesandnebulouspodcasts.com. If you have any issue signing up for the newsletter, we very much want you to be able to subscribe. Now, for my favorite item of the week, I must plug Christine Rosen's piece in the January issue of Commentary which is how disinformation journalists practice disinformation. This was like right down the center of the plate for me. And Christine writes, it is not news that people post crazy things online and not a surprise that some people unfortunately decide to believe them. What is new is the industry that has emerged to report on it and police it and the incentive to see crisis and danger around every corner. The language of military conflict crops up regularly when disinformation reporters describe their work. They note that they are, quote, on the front lines of a, quote, information war as if scrolling through 4chan and appearing on cable television are akin to risking risking one's life in battle. Read the whole thing. Read the whole thing. We will link it in our newsletter. We could hardly have a better designated survivor than Christine Rosen. So that is no. very good. That is all the time that we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. Just search for wretches. <laughs> <laughs>